Welcome to uh, our midweek study. It's good to be here as always. Um, just getting into the Word of God. Now, we're, tonight we're going to be uh, continuing our study through the book of Ezra. We are in chapter 4 this evening. As you turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 4, I uh, just want to give, uh, give an announcement in regards to the, uh, and a reminder, our VBS volunteer meeting. Uh, if you're interested in helping at this year's VBS, which is coming up, it's right around the corner, it's uh, June 15th, uh, which is a Thursday, and then also Friday, June 16th. There will be a meeting uh, tonight following service, and that'll be in C1, so one of our classrooms right out um, in the foyer area, um, and that is C1. So you can just take a look at the signs on the doors and, and uh, be directed um, to where we'll have the meeting. So again, VBS, if you're interested in serving uh, or have questions, please go to C1, C1 after service, and um, there you will have your questions answered, and you'll go over some details in regards to uh, this year's VBS. Um, so as I said, we, we are in Ezra chapter 4, and um, tonight we are going through... Um, a section of scripture in the life of the Israelites who have now been um, given the opportunity to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But one thing that we're going to um, see here is how it is that they're going to face opposition. Now, every single one of us is familiar with opposition. The first time your parents told you no or don't, you experienced opposition. Someone you see at that point was actively stopping you from doing what you wanted to do. Even as a little kid, you, you learned uh, about opposition. Now, we know some opposition is good because it serves to stop you from doing something that you shouldn't be doing. Right? But then there is other opposition that is not so good because the whole purpose of that opposition is to stop you from doing something that is good, that you should be doing. Opposition can be subtle or it can be obvious. Opposition can be implied or it can be explicit. Opposition can also be gentle. But opposition can also be violent. The origin of opposition can be from a stranger or strangers. And it can come from someone who is very familiar to you. It can come from an origin of sincerity and concern. Or it can come from jealousy with not so good intentions, even diabolical intentions. Knowing this, and we know this to be true, I, I bring up this, this subject, this topic, because this is exactly what we're going to uh, come across this evening as we go through this chapter. As Christians, we should be acutely aware that the enemy opposes us every chance he gets. Knowing this and being reminded of this is all the more reason why we understand why we acknowledge, why we know that it is critical 
For the Christian to be fully aware of who God is, first and foremost, know what's true, know who you serve, know who you worship, know who it is that you have your hope secure in. Knowing exactly what the word says. Because as you do, what happens is you develop this strength in wisdom, God's wisdom. You have the ability to discern between what is good and what is bad. What is God's will and what is clearly not God's will. Things after a while, as you read through and you study God's word and you know who God is, and you've dealt with opposition time and time again. Perhaps you, you haven't responded, you didn't respond well in the past, but after a while, if you persevere, if you continue to press into the Lord and trust in Him, what happens is your discernment becomes sharp or sharper. And you begin to have the ability to discern between what is God's will and what is not God's will. You know, Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is, the perfect will of God. You see, from the very beginning... Satan has attempted to undermine the word of God and stop his good plans by confusing people and even twisting his own word. Genesis 3, 1 uh, through 3 gives the account of the deception that came about in the Garden of Eden. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She continued though. She said, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. As soon as you have someone question the word of God, you're, um, you, sh- you should be attentive. <laughs> you should wonder what the motive is for questioning the word of God. You see, this is where it began, began for Eve. It began with the question that the serpent posed to Eve. The serpent questioned God's word, and the woman, she gave the right answer to begin with, but she added, she embellished upon the word of God. She added to the word of God. But in the end, she was deceived and she gave in to the temptation. Listen, to to go into this chapter, you know, some things to consider is number one, do you know God's word well enough to not be fooled? If you were to be confronted, someone gives the word, but just kind of twists it a little bit, would you be able to detect that twisting? 
Would you be able to discern that there is an embellishment upon the word of God? To say more than what it actually says in order to somehow justify their position or undermine your position. Especially when the opposition to God's word is subtle. It's not obvious. When God's word is even used in a way that sounds good, are you able to discern when it's used out of context? You see, Satan always challenges God. He always has from the very beginning. For Lucifer, he said, I will be like God. And so it's his nature. It's in his character to challenge God. It's in his nature to challenge, to oppose God's people. It's in his nature to oppose and make every attempt to undermine and twist God's word. Why? Because Satan desires to always exalt himself above God. And to that I say, anyone desiring to exalt self over God's word, because this is, the bottom line is this is exactly what's happening. When people, when you bring the word into a situation and they dismiss the word of God and they insist on their own opinions to be received and accepted above God's word, what they're doing in essence is exalting themselves above God. In a like manner. They're acting in the same manner. And also. On his behalf. Father I ask that you would bless our time in your word. Well Lord it's tough when we are opposed. And yet. Your word says my brethren counted all joy when you. Face various, various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Lord, these trials, these tribulations, opposition, confrontation, Lord, it should serve to drive us deeper into your word, to, to test the spirits, whether they are true or not. It should, these things should cause us to go back to your word and perhaps study it even more that we may have an answer for the hope that lies within us. And so, Lord, help us to see that we are to persevere, that you are faithful, that you are with us, and you are enough. And so, Father, we thank you for this time. We ask your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ezra chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Azaradon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, 
You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So the first two verses, as we read through, immediately what we see, you know, is this not the the will of God for them to have returned to Jerusalem for the specific work of rebuilding the temple? And the answer is yes, right? It's It's a rhetorical question. We all know the answer to that. And yet immediately, they are faced with opposition. But these adversaries are presenting themselves as willing partners. In other words, friends. We're here as allies to come alongside you and build with you. The people who are identified as adversaries of Judah and Benjamin were none other than the Samaritans. The Samaritans, it would just to give you a little background to help us understand or maybe remind us of who they were. They were a group of Jews who were left behind at the time of the, their exile. And they were left there for a number of years, 70 years, uh, which is equivalent to about one and a half to two generations. And what they did was they, they mixed, they intermarried with the surrounding nations These people that were left behind, according to Jeremiah 39.10, were the poorest of the Jews. They were the ones who were left behind to tend to the vineyards and to the fields. But again, as I said, they they mixed with the nations around them. Those that came in, you see that the land was deserted for for the most part. And so the nations could come in freely. And, And instead of acknowledging the Lord's command to not mix with the nations, they ignored that. And they intermarried with other peoples. This led their hearts away from the Lord as they at some point chose to practice a faith that combined the law of Moses with the idolatry and superstitions that were, are involved always in idolatry. You have to be superstitious to be idolatrous. You know, these, these gods that uh, are, are wooden, have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but cannot hear, hands but cannot do anything. You have to be superstitious. Oh, I saw a moving. Really? <laughs> this idolatry has to involve a dark imagination, a superstition, and you open yourself up to easily being fooled by the enemy. Well, this is what they mixed themselves up in. The Samaritans were, because of their mixing with other nations, they were despised by the Jews and considered to be half-breeds. Uh, derogatively referring to them as mutts or mongrels. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 33 is an apt description of them. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. This is the way in which the Samaritans conducted themselves. These were the people that had heard about the Jews returning from exile to build the temple. 
and Jerusalem, its walls. And so as they heard, they quickly approached Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the leaders and told them, hey, we want to build with you. Why? Because we've been worshiping the same God. We've been sacrificing to the same God. As we read through there, remember something to ask yourself. What was it that they were there to do? Those who were in exile in Babylon and now returned to Jerusalem, what were they there to do? What is the first thing that they built? The altar. That was the first thing that they built was the altar. Remember that? They built the altar. What is the altar used for? Sacrifices, right? The temple is where the priests would go in and minister, right? The priests were in Babylon. So here's the key to understanding their false worship of God. When they said, we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him. Ever since the days of Azaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. If the altar and the temple and the priests were all taken captive to Babylon, then how are they doing this? No different than the northern kingdom. Having set up their own system of worship. Not with priests in the line of Aaron, but they ordained their own priesthood. Same thing. That is exactly what the Samaritans were doing. If they were sacrificing to God, then it was done in a way that was wrong. It was not according to God's word. Not according to God's commandments. Therefore, and this is the conclusion to it, right? Is that they actually did not worship their God as they were. They could not have. To the Samaritans, the God of Israel was one of many gods. This is idolatry. It's false worship. And the reason why the Israelites were actually taken into captivity. It was because of their idolatry. They refused to confess and repent, turn back to the Lord. So they were taken into captivity. From the Jews' perspective, this was a very dangerous partnership. They discerned well. But from the Samaritans' perspective, for them, it was simply a smart political move. It was a maneuver by them. You see, the Jews knew the danger of idolatry, but the Samaritans knew that, hey, if they accepted our partnership, then perhaps the Israelites would eventually adopt their views, receive them, they'd have influence over their way of life, and over the course of time, they would corrupt them from the inside out. You know, 1 Corinthians 15.33, sometimes we don't, we, we tend to, you know, we read it, we study it, we see how it applies to the Israelites, what they were warned of, what they were disciplined for, chastised, all of that time and time again, right? It's a big cycle, over and over again. 
but sometimes we fail to apply it to our own lives today, perhaps even within the church. 1 Corinthians 15.33 is very clear. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Uh, perhaps if that's too simple, right? Too short, let's, let's uh, uh, go to another, like a cross-reference, something that will support that, that truth. As in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, the Apostle Paul, and by the way, he quotes Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, as we go through this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. First Corinthians 5, 6 it says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? These, these are verses that we've gone through. We've already, we know these very well, right? Sometimes we just fail to recognize them personally or apply them. Listen, even if the Samaritans didn't know, perhaps they were fooled in their own hearts. They were deceived. Know this, that the Samaritans would only serve to undermine the work of God, to hinder the work, to slow it down, to interrupt the work of the Lord. But they did have discernment. They did exercise right discernment. As in verse 3, it says, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, just be honest, please. Think, think about this, all right? There are many people who would look at that response and say, well, that wasn't very Christ-like, right? That wasn't very nice. That wasn't very loving. They were trying to help. They wanted to come alongside you. Why would you push away that kind of help? They were sincere in their desire to come and help. I can tell you that especially, especially as it pertains to pastors. You need to know that pastors, people are very quick to judge a, a pastor's response to something like this. Or we're called legalists. Uh, you're very strict. 
Why would you do something like that? That's not very loving. But that, you see, that involves a, uh, you know, the redefining of love and not understanding Scripture. You see, Scripture also tells us that we are to hate what God hates. I just went over a Scripture that said we are not to be unequally yoked. You see, one of my responsibilities is, yes, to teach you, but also is to stand as the watchman. To not allow that which doesn't belong into the midst of the gathering of God's people. And that's tough, especially today. It is tough. Because the church as a whole is saying, bring it all in. If it serves to bring more people in, then by all means do it. Even raffling off a Harley, right? <laughs> there was a church that actually did that years ago. Raffled off a Harley. And I, to, for those of you who have been here for any length of time, you've heard me mention that. But that response, people would judge and say, that's not very loving. You know, after a while, you got to have a response that is discerning, that is right, that is keeping in mind what the will of the Lord is. I love how it is that even Nehemiah, when he had uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, enemies, had heard that he had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, as it says in Nehemiah chapter 6, Although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Verse 2 says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Did they say that? No, he just, he knew that. He knew what their intention was. He says in verse 3, And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? It's happened four times. You know what Nehemiah's answer was every time? Same thing. Same thing. You, you see, at some point, we need to get to that place to where we're discerning. We're like, I'm not going to stop this work. I know what your intention is. I don't have to give you the time of day. Everyone else may insist that you do. You should give that person time and place. No, I, I've, I've dealt with that person or persons over and over again. You don't know what I know. You think the multitudes knew exactly what Nehemiah knew? I don't think so. But Nehemiah knew, and he said, no, I won't go. I'm going to keep on building. Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the leaders, they responded in a like manner. They had accurate discernment. This was a right response all of these men, these leaders, were all united in their response to the Samaritans and refused their help. Let's talk about ecumenism. 
Uh, this, is, this is strong today in, across religious circles. Unity among all professing Christians is what this is, including cooperation and unity among all Christian denominations and churches, regardless of doctrinal beliefs. I just read a little leaven leavens a whole lump, did I not? Let me ask you this, is sound doctrine important? Absolutely. You see, today and what the attempt is for some as they call on the church to be ecumenical, that is unified for all denominations and churches across the board who claim to be Christians to come together in unity are actually saying they have an intentional disregard for sound doctrine. What that does is it promotes a false unity. It confuses people, actually. And it encourages them to be lazy as it pertains to knowing and observing and standing on sound doctrine. You know, when you give that, you're united. What you're doing is you're you're endorsing without saying anything. You're implying that you, they're okay. You're, on, you're, you're partnering up with them. You're saying it's okay. It confuses people. And it makes people, like I said, come to a place of just being lazy and accepting anything and everything. Kind of like a child that puts everything in their mouth. You know? You need, you need to you know, teach them. No, not that. You have to make sure that they learn there are some things you do not put in your mouth, right? Not good for you. When you get older, you also have to learn that's not good to put in your, put in your mouth, right? <laughs> but the church is like that. We need to be disciplined. We need to have discernment. We also need to have the courage to say, no, I, I, I don't want to give that, that impression that this unity, which is absolutely, absolutely a false unity, is okay. It, it can be. They could have said, hey, we can use all the help we can get. Come on. But what happens is that the help you do accept leads you into a place of perceived obligation. One feels obligated to bring them in and continue the partnership in ways you know you shouldn't. It involves compromise. Hey, they scratched my back. I'm going to scratch theirs. G. Campbell Morgan said this, quote, Men of faith have often fallen into this blunder and have associated with themselves those not sharing their faith and therefore, in the deepest sense, opposed to their enterprises. These leaders were not deceived. They detected the peril, close quote, which is to their shame. And these men did not, of course, respond appropriately. We need to, men, we, we need to once again have that internal fortitude to be willing to stand alone if, if we must, if we need to, if that's what's required of us. But know that you're not standing alone. You're standing with the Lord. I'll ask this. When will the Lord be enough? 
And when is he not enough? We need to get to the point where we respond, are willing to, and, and have the conviction to respond just like Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the leaders did, just like Nehemiah did. Well, this is opposition. This, is, this was subtle at first, right? This, is not, this wasn't explicit, but Zerubbabel had the discernment, and he knew the difference. Verse 4, as we continue, says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so they showed, what happened here is that they showed their true colors. That's really what, what happened. They ended up showing their true colors. Listen, people who are rejected by God's people demonstrate they are in reality enemies of God when they actively attack God's people for having denied their partnership or admonished them, having been admonished and refused to accept their false doctrine and disobedience to sound doctrine. If the people of the land were genuine in their offer, then they would have simply accepted the Jews' refusal and encourage them nonetheless. If they were genuine. Okay, no, I understand. But they didn't. What they did was that they actively opposed them. They, um, it is described here that the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. What this means is they, they attempted to... Their hands were strong at one point, which means that they, they were filled with courage. They were doing the work. They were encouraged. They, were, they, they had a, a passion for what they were doing. But what they were trying to do is weaken their hands. Trying to weaken them. When you have weak hands, you can't hold anything. Things easily slip out of your hands. And if they weaken their hands, then at that point they've... They put them in a position of being stricken with fear. If they're stricken with fear, they could be paralyzed and not act with courage. Meaning that would lead to them stop, stopping their building efforts. I mean, they, they were very active in their opposition they went to the extent of bribing men of political influence to make their efforts difficult. That is, the efforts of the Israelites who were there. Making their efforts so difficult that it was, it was for the purpose of preventing them from succeeding or completing the task that they were there to perform. Did you know that there were more Samaritans that there, than there were Israelites. There were more. There were more of the enemy than there were of God's people. The majority does not mean that they're right. Oftentimes it's the minority that are joined with the Lord that are standing in the right place because they are standing with the Lord. You see, God's enemies have a tendency of gathering even if their only purpose is to oppose God's people 
and to stifle their efforts. If hatred, bitterness, and vengeance is the uniting force within a group, then know that that was born in the depths of hell and not ordained by God. Bitterness, anger, jealousy, resentment. If that's why a group is gathering, they're not right. Was not, that's not ordained by God. Proverbs 24, 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Isn't that tough? That's what God calls us to. Love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Wow. Do not dare to lift your hand up against an anointed one of God, one who's been placed in a position especially within the church, don't, don't do it. You should not rejoice over wrongdoing. You should not rejoice over vengeance. In fact, Micah chapter 7, verse 8 says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. There should be a fear. Like if, you, if you're in that place to where you have this anger and bitterness, you have this resentment to the point to where you wish something happened to someone else. That's not a good place in your heart to be. There must be a, a fear of the Lord. Lord, it is in your hands. Whatever it is that you choose to do, it, it's, it's up to you. I can tell you, we don't have time to go over you know, all the things that I've been opposed with personally. Now we can go back. I've been told many things. I remember sitting down with someone who was um, leaving the church. And they said, you know, um, I'm not there because of your teaching. Surely it's like, it's mediocre at best. And, uh, and so, <clears throat> yeah, no, it was... And you know what? I don't think it's gone any further than that. You know, I'm not, I'm not here. And that's the thing is, as I tell you this, I'm not telling you this so that, oh, you can tell me something different. I'm not. I'm just telling you there's been opposition from the very beginning. Even before uh, this place was converted into what it is now, we had someone come to the church and uh, just say things that were crazy. And that was just specifically against me. And, th and that was a little old lady. I mean, some of you, I know Bettina was there. Who else was there? Randy? Were, you were there. Stephen was there. Yeah, it was wild, wasn't it? And, and this little old lady, which she was very nice at the beginning, but was dropped off here by this taxi, he had no idea, had picked her up like in Fontana, right? Fontana Rialto out there, and brought her directly here because she told him to, and came in, and like the accuser of the brethren, started saying things about me and telling the other people around me, if I were you, I wouldn't follow him. Had no, like, how'd you know I was the pastor, right? That this was a church 
There was no sign. There was nothing. This was a warehouse at the time. I've been told that, um, you know, yeah, I, I wish that uh, to have your, basically your head delivered on a silver platter. Literally. Perhaps the, uh, the spirit of Herodias was, was in that person. I've been told many other things. When I open up the word in a time of dealing with things, I've been told, oh, now you want to open up the word? I always want to open up the word. If, if there's going to be correction even coming my way, please open up the word. Tell me. You see, the whole purpose of confrontation is for reconciliation, is for restoration. Not just to, to give our opinion, right? But tell me something that's true. For any of you who actually know me, who actually know me, you know that if you bring the word to me, I will receive it. God help me if I don't, but I, I do receive it. And I will respond to it. It's times of like that that you're tested. Will you stand? When people like that come up against you, do you wish ill upon them? I can tell you that I, I do not. I'll pray for them. I desire for them to be restored unto the Lord first and foremost. And if at all possible, that we would be restored. But we ought to not rejoice over those who are our enemies, but simply commit them to the Lord. The period of Israel's opposition extended into the days of Nehemiah. Verses 4 through 23, it's kind of like a a parenthetical um, statement here. It records the Samaritan opposition being... uh, continuing on through a succession of kings. It's, it's not just one. As, as we will see, it's, it's a, a number of kings that the Samaritan opposition will continue through. The kings mentioned are King Cyrus, King Darius, King Ahasuerus, that is King Xerxes, and also King Artaxerxes I. You see, what the whole point here is that there was an ongoing resistance to Israel under each king. And again, that is why as Christians, we need to persevere. We need to have a conviction that says, as for me, I will serve the Lord. Come what may, I am going to continue walking with the Lord. Though I stumble, he is the lifter of my head. And so he will bring me up once again and we will keep going. You need to have that conviction, that resolve in your heart. Whatever resistance confronts you, you are with the Lord and you will continue. And this is the resistance that Israel saw under each of those kings. Verse 6 
says, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Under uh, King Ahasuerus, I'll give you the dates for his reign, 485 to 465 B.C. And under his reign, the Samaritans wrote an accusation to persuade the king so that he would decree that the work would stop. This was the king that was in place during the time of uh, sisters, you've gone through the book of Esther, right? During that time. But we know that their efforts were unsuccessful. What this tells us is that the enemies of God were persistent and united, and yet, at the same time, completely wrong. They may have been sincere, but they, they were sincerely wrong. They were united in their efforts, but they were united in the wrong thing. Verse 7, and we're going to read through uh, verse 16. It says, in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates, wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Ram, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Ram, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. And they are building that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. Uh, we make known to the, to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. And now, again, this was during the time of King Artaxerxes, 464 to 424 B.C. The letter, as it says here, was written in Aramaic. Uh, in fact, verses, so Ezra chapter 4, verse 8 to Ezra chapter 6, verse 18 is all written in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. Natalie? That was a question that had come up. I love when, when people have questions because we go through and then we establish, you know, is that true or is it not true? Yes, it's true. And we understand why. Also in Aramaic is found another section of Ezra, and that is Ezra chapter 7, verses 12 through 26. So if you're jotting down notes, you can jot down, down that as well. It's believed that the letter was dictated in Persian to a scribe and translated in Aramaic and thus written in Aramaic. Now, this was in reference to the building of the city and its walls. It was not referring to the temple. Since 
here's, here's why we can come to this conclusion. It's because Zerubbabel started the work and he also finished it. So it was finished in a relatively short amount of time. In fact, some of the people who had seen Solomon's temple had lived long enough to see Zerubbabel's temple. According to Zechariah 4.9, again, if you're jotting down notes, Zechariah 4.9, and also Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. And so, by the reign of Artaxerxes, the temple actually had been standing for some 50 years. So this was an attempt to stop the work of the rebuilding of the city, that is, of Jerusalem, and its walls. What they said. Now we need to as, consider what was said in this letter. Because it wasn't all false. The words. Although not completely false. There was some truth to the letter. Their words. Were manipulative. They were deceptive. And they were overall false. Just like Satan when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He took God's word out of context. He twisted it. And see Jesus being who he is also is a great example to us. The perfect example. We ought to be able to take what anyone tells us and discern when it's being taken out of context and applied in a wrong way. You see, these people were doing everything that they possibly could to convince the king that the Jews had every intention of rebelling against him and encouraging an insurrection, leading a violent uprising against the king. They were doing everything they could to convince him of that. The truth is that, yes, Jerusalem and the people of Judah and Israel had a sinful past. But that was not true of the present people who had gathered, who had returned, and were there for the purpose of simply restoring the true worship of God. This is not to mention the fact that the spiritual position of the accusers was the very reason why God sent the Jews into captivity to begin with, which is quite ironic. Remember that the Samaritans were a people who mixed in all of the above, like it's kind of like all religions go together. You can imagine the, the coexist bumper sticker, let's do it all. Okay. The lie was that the Jews had a rebellious intention in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. It was to overthrow. It was not for that. It's just, again, restoring the true worship of God. And so the Samaritans were working to convince the king that he has much to lose by allowing the Jews to continue their work. It was a manufactured and false narrative to oppose God's people and stop them from doing God's work. According to Revelation 12.10, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And this is exactly what the Samaritans were doing. They were... They were the accusers of the brethren, they were accusing them of something that was not their intent, it wasn't their motive, it wasn't why they were back there rebuilding the temple and Jerusalem. 
Attacks that include the twisting of lies or the twisting of truth, which are actually lies mixed in with a little truth, convinces the undiscerning to oppose God's people and undermine their effectiveness or even stop their successful advancement. Just know that this work is consistent. It is relentless. It will not stop. And that is even more reason why it is that we need to be studied up. We need to know sound doctrine. That we can not only discern, we can detect that, but we can also stand opposed to it. Verse 17, let's continue. It says, The king sent an answer to Ram, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who lived, live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, Greeting, and now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province, beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease. And that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the herd of the king? So, unfortunately, the king was convinced. The sinful past of Israel was what was considered. And action was taken by the king to stop the present work of rebuilding Jerusalem. And that's, that's what we have here. The king was, was convinced You see, it was true. In the past, Israel had powerful kings in the past who received tribute from neighboring nations. And the king thought that perhaps they had the potential to return to that same status. And so the king commanded that the work stop and that this action be taken immediately. Lest his kingdom incur damage as a result of delay. So at that point, he was was convinced. He said, go and do it now. Go stop them. And verse 23 says, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Ram and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the adversaries, the Samaritans, quickly brought word to the Jews. I mean, in haste, right? Meaning they immediately, hey, we finally got the approval. Let's go and stop this work. Finally, we have succeeded. They brought word to the Jews, and they by force stopped them from doing the work. That means that they came um, basically with with weapons. They came in with, with an army. And they caused them to stop the work. Well, they succeeded, seemingly. They succeeded for a whole 15 years. For 15 years, the work stopped. So that tells you that the work did not stop indefinitely. It stopped for a short period of time. You see, the... The enemy of God will never be successful in stopping God's work from being completed. No matter who it is that he uses. Whether it be that group, 
or another group. The work of God just continues. To that, I, I say, hallelujah, I, I praise God for that. I, I want above all that, that the Lord's work continue. That's what we should all desire. That's what we should all look to. And that is exactly what we have here. You see, that's, this is not the end of the story. There's more to come, right? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Listen, although we, we are opposed, know that we persevere in the Lord. We are more than victors in Christ. In him, not only do we know victory over sin, but also death. In this world, you will, you will know, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Job, our wonderful brother Job, said this, and this is in reference to the Lord in Job 42.2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's awesome. Like, remember that, Job 42.2. You know that you can do, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We need to be reminded of that often. Often. Sometimes where we're in a place to where we feel overwhelmed. We feel like the enemies of God really have overwhelmed us. They're numerous. They're doing and saying things that are such a burden that other people just don't understand. Please don't ever hold resentment or anger or bitterness towards someone else who doesn't understand. Please don't do that. Just know that other people are, are per, perhaps coming along, alongside you, making every attempt to be comforting to you. They may say the wrong things. It's okay. Allow them to do that. But the one who's with you and the one who is faithful, the one who has to be enough every time is the Lord. You need to be content with just him. Know God's word well enough to not be fooled. Especially for when the opposition to God's word is subtle and God's word is even used in a way that sounds good but is out of context. We saw this throughout this chapter. Because Satan always challenges God. Satan always challenges God's people. Satan always challenges God's word because Satan desires to exalt himself above God. And know that anyone desiring to exalt self over God's word in like is acting in the same manner and working on his behalf. So all the more reason, hey, listen, if, if you don't want any opposition at all and you will still deal with issues, with circumstances, tough circumstances, then that was, that was before Christ. I remember, you know what, before Christ actually, I don't remember quite being disliked at times and being confronted and, and maybe even hated like I have after I came to Christ. I don't, I don't remember that. I, I can't think of anybody but some skirmishes that I have had um, as, as, a, as a young man or as a, as a boy with some, some guys. And then 
with some of them I became best friends. <laughs> Just know that God is with you. He is faithful. You will deal with opposition, but make sure that you have courage enough to stand with the Lord, discern between good and evil, and even if you have to stand alone, stand on the side of truth and stand with the Lord. Never have bitterness harboring in your heart. Make sure that any anger is dealt with. You give it to the Lord and pray for others. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word once again. We ask, Lord, that, Father, as we went over this chapter and the things that we have been made aware of, Lord, that we, um, we are better for it, that we know your faithfulness. We know that we can stand with you and know that we are in the right place. And so, Lord, help us against any opposition, anything that tries to stop your work from continuing. May we simply resolve in our own hearts uh, to continue to walk with you and to serve you, to bless you. And Lord, encourage others to do the same. And so, Lord, thank you for loving us the way you do. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.